We are in Job, and we finished the first three chapters last week, which brings us inexorably to chapter four. You all remember the setup. Job is minding his own business, and up in heaven, Satan comes into the presence of God, and God lifts up Job in front of Satan. Satan says, the only reason that he praises you is because you've blessed him. If you touch all the stuff that he has, then he will curse you. So God allows Satan to wreck Job's property and family. Job does not curse God in that process. So Satan comes back to God, and God says, see, he hasn't cursed me. And Satan says, well, if you let me touch his body, he will. So God allows Satan to give Job boils and all sorts of stuff. And in that process, three of Job's friends come from the east. And they sit down to comfort him. And they sit with him for seven days in silence, which is a good thing. So today what's going to happen is the friends are going to start speaking. The first one is going to be Eliphaz the Temanite. We'll go through his in just a minute. A couple of more general things. The stuff that these guys are going to say are all things that you would hear in church. They spout generalities about God and assert that Job has got some kind of a secret sin that he has done. And if it wasn't for something that Job has done, none of this would come upon him. And they recite things that sound like they could come out of the book of Proverbs. In fact, some of them do. And there's a couple of things to say about that. Thing one is, what they're trying to do is define the creator from inside the creation. We're inside the creation. God is outside the creation. And sort of by definition, God is bigger and more comprehensive than the creation. And it is not even theoretically possible to define God from inside of his creation. He created everything. So anything that is possible within that creation, by definition, cannot encompass the creator. It's very difficult to talk about God as Christians understand him, because again, he's outside the creation and we're inside the creation. So all of these things that God has written in his book to talk about himself are true, but they are not all-encompassing because they can't be. So in Proverbs, it will say very clearly that it really goes better for you in life if you don't follow a path of wickedness. And that's true, it does. But just because things don't go well for you in life does not therefore mean that you are following a path of wickedness. The other thing that's going on here is God has put his earthly reputation in the hands of Job. He has said, my man Job is righteous. My man Job is not going to curse me. My man Job is going to continue to be righteous in the face of everything that you can do. So what God is doing is he is doing Job great honor. But he's putting Job through a tremendously bad time in that process. 
And at the end of it, Job is going to have an entire book of the Bible written with his name on the title. Now, I'm not volunteering for that. Because in order to get there, you see the things that Job has to go through. God, from his position outside of the creation, recognizes that what he is doing for Job is a tremendous honor in the universe. Job doesn't see it that way while he's going through it. Because one of the things that this book does is it gives you a vision from outside of the creation. It gives you a perspective beyond the four walls and the ceiling and the floor that we live in. In doing that, it isn't possible for it to be complete because again, you can't see the creator completely from inside the creation. So, chapter four. Then Eliphaz, the Temanite, answered and said, if one ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? Yet who can keep from speaking? Behold, you have instructed many, and you have strengthened the weak hands. Your words have upheld him who was stumbling, and you have made firm the feeble knees. But now it has come to you, and you are impatient. It touches you, and you are dismayed. Is not your fear of God, your confidence, and the integrity of your ways, your hope? So what he's saying is, Job, you're a prominent man. We talked about this last time. This book would not be of any interest to anybody if Job had not been a prominent man. If Job had been some guy that didn't have learned and wealthy friends and was not himself learned and wealthy, the book would not be of much interest because bad things happen all the time to people. And the fact that Job is righteous in God's eyes and in his own eyes, and the fact that his friends are knowledgeable is what makes this book useful. So the first thing he's saying is, Job, you have comforted all sorts of people, but boy, as soon as it's your turn, you fold up like a $2 suitcase. Verse 7, remember who that was innocent ever perished, or where are the upright cut off? So now this is one of these platitudes. So what he's saying is, the innocent don't perish, and the upright do not get cut off. Therefore, if you are perishing and you are being cut off, then we can infer something about your state of righteousness. That's the way the argument is going here. Verse 8, as I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of his anger they are consumed. The roar of the lion, the voice of the fierce lion, the teeth of the young lions are broken. The strong lion perishes for lack of prey, and the cubs of the lioness are scattered. So what he's saying here is, people who are in your predicament have sown iniquity, and they are reaping what they have sown. Now, I started off this thing by saying this sounds a lot like Proverbs. It is a lot like Proverbs. And in fact, if you don't plow iniquity, your chances of reaping iniquity are pretty slim. But what we're finding is it's not impossible. So what the Temanite here is saying is, hey, this bad stuff is happening to you. You reap what you sow. So somewhere you must have sown some iniquity and you are now reaping a crop. Verse 12. Now a word was brought to me stealthily. My ear received the whisper of it. 
amid thoughts from visions of the night, when deep sleep falls on men, dread came upon me and trembling, which made all my bones shake. A spirit glided past my face, the hair of my flesh stood up, it stood still, but I could not discern the appearance. A form was before my eyes, there was silence, then I heard a voice. Remember, they'd been there for seven days. So what he's saying is, I received a word from the supernatural about you, Job. Verse 16 and a half. A form was before my eyes, there was silence when I heard a voice. Can mortal man be right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? Even in his servants he puts no trust, and his angels he charges with error. How much more those who dwell in houses of clay, whose foundation is in the dust, who are crushed like the moth. Between morning and evening they are beaten to pieces. They perish forever without anyone regarding it. Is not their tent cord plucked up within them? Do they not die and that without wisdom? So this is the vision that he has received, or he says he's received. Now, one of the things that Brian said years ago, which I've always liked, is people will come up to church and say, God told me about something about you. And Brian's answer is always, he didn't tell me. Which is to say, I have no way of checking whether or not what you are saying is true or from God. So the idea here that Eliphaz says, I had a vision. Maybe so, maybe not. But the other thing about this is, this is standard Sunday Christian theology. Man cannot be righteous. And furthermore, he says he charges even the angels were there. How much more then is he going to charge men who live in houses of clay were there? In other words, it is not possible to be righteous. You must have sinned somewhere. Everybody sins. Therefore, you must have sinned. Therefore, you deserve what is coming down upon you. That is the catechism that's being said here, which is why it's really important that the whole thing starts off with God saying to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, a man righteous in everything he does? So God has validated Job, and Eliphaz's Sunday school theology is all of our righteousness is like filthy rags. You need to take that in context, because the context in which that is said is Israel is about to go into exile. Israel is maintaining the form of worship. Israel is going into the temple and sacrificing and saying, the temple of the Lord. And God is saying to them, all of your righteousness is like dirty diapers because you are about to go into exile because you are wicked and you are covering over your wickedness with the forms of religion and the forms of worship. So for people to say, well, all your righteousness is like dirty diapers, that is not true generally. That is only true in that context. And the idea that man cannot live a righteous life is being refuted here by Job. God has said, Job is righteous. Eliphaz is saying, nobody can be righteous. There must be something in your past. There must be something that you've done because the only reason all this could come upon you is because of your own sin. And the setup of the book 
says that's not true. I have no patience with Christians who just sort of generally quote this, all our sins is like filthy rags. That's only true in the context that it was given. It is not true generally. God very much cares about your attempts to be righteous, which isn't to say that you have to be perfect. There's a difference between perfection and righteousness. Chapter 5. This is still Eliphaz speaking. Call now. Is there anyone who will answer you? To which of the holy ones will you turn? Surely vexation kills the fool and jealousy slays the simple. I have seen the fool taking root, but suddenly I cursed his dwelling. His children are far from safety. They are crushed by the gate and there is no one to deliver them. Job's children just got crushed. So what he's saying is, Job, you're a fool. You're a fool to say that you are righteous. And oh, by the way, your kids just got crushed and I have seen the children of a fool being far from safety and they are crushed in the gate and there is no one to deliver them. The hungry eat his harvest and he takes it even out of the thorns, which is to say, he plants, somebody else eats his harvest, and the only stuff he has left is the stuff that's growing up among the thorns, and he has got to pick through the thorns to get what's left of his harvest. So, verse 5 again, the hungry eat his harvest, and he takes it even out of the thorns, and the thirsty pant after his wealth. And by the way, the Sabians and the Chaldeans have just raided and taken all of his wealth. Okay, that all happened in the first couple chapters. Verse 6, For affliction does not come from the dust, nor does trouble sprout from the ground. But man is born to trouble as the sparks fly heavenward. So what he's saying is, trouble is not without cause. It is not the case that you're just sort of walking along and, and trouble grows up like weeds and entraps you. No. You have done something here, Job, to deserve all this, is what he's saying. Now, again, you can find all of this stuff in Proverbs. And as advice to a young person, which is what Proverbs is, this is really good advice. Don't sow trouble. Don't sow iniquity. Walk in righteousness. That's all really great advice. But it's not syllogistic. It is not the case that if you do all that, you are guaranteed that nothing bad will ever happen to you. What you do is you increase the probability that bad things won't happen to you. So if you go out and you steal stuff, the chances are pretty good that you're going to wind up in jail. Or somebody that you stole from is going to come find you. Chances are really good of that. But that doesn't mean that you can't just walk down the street and suddenly be the victim of a drive-by shooting. That can happen too. Verse 8, as for me, I would seek God, and to God I would commit my cause. Who does great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number? He gives rain on the earth and sends waters on the field. He sets on high those who are lowly, and those who mourn are lifted to safety. He frustrates the devices of the crafty, so that their hands achieve no success. This is, again, right out of Proverbs frustrates the device of the crafty so their hands achieve no success. So what Eliphaz is saying is, uh, Job, if I were in your position, I would throw my trust into God. And then he is extolling the virtues of God, which are all true, as if Job hasn't thrown himself on the mercy of God. 
So this is by way of saying, Job, if I were in your situation, I would humble myself before God and throw myself on his mercy. The implication there being, you're not doing that. 13. He catches the wise in their own craftiness, and the schemes of the wily are brought to a quick end. They meet with darkness in the daytime and grope at noonday as in the night. That is also in Isaiah. Job may have been written before Isaiah, but that same phrase is used in Isaiah as well as in Deuteronomy. Verse 15. But he saves the needy from the sword of their mouth, from the hand of the mighty. So the poor have hope, and injustice shuts her mouth. So saving the needy from the sword of their mouth, which is to say they say things that are foolish, and God doesn't necessarily count it against them. If you say things that are foolish and unwise and wicked, those sayings may very well come back upon you. My dad used to say, a closed mouth gathers no fist. So anyway, saving the needy from the sword of their mouth, you have people who are poor and needy and they run their mouths and complain. And what he says is God has mercy on such. Down to 17. Behold, blessed is the one whom God reproves. Therefore, despise not the discipline of the Almighty. Good advice. A father disciplines and reproves his child. However, I will suggest that the degree of reproof here on God borders on child abuse. Now, understand, I started off this whole thing by saying God is going to do Job great honor. And the honor that God is going to do Job is as a result of his standing fast through all of this stuff that has come upon him. From God's perspective, this is all just. From Job's perspective, here inside the creation, this is really a bad deal. And it's only at the end of it that he finally realizes the great honor that he has been done. Going into it, I don't know that he would have chosen that, but I don't know that he wouldn't have either. He didn't, he, he didn't get a choice. Back to verse 17. Behold, blessed is the one whom God reproves, therefore despise not the discipline of the Almighty. For he wounds, but he binds up. He shatters, but his hands heal. He will deliver you from six troubles. In seven, no evil shall touch you. Verse 20. In famine, he will redeem you from death. In war, from the power of the sword. You shall be hidden from the lash of the tongue and shall not fear destruction when it comes. At destruction and famine you shall laugh, and shall not fear the beasts of the earth. For you shall be in league with the stones of the field, and the beasts of the field shall be at peace with you. What he's saying is, when God binds you up, all of this will happen to you. Which is to say, in famine he'll redeem you from death, and war from the power of the sword, from the hidden lash of the tongue, and no fear of destruction, and, and so forth. Verse 24, You shall know that your tent is at peace, and you shall inspect your fold and miss nothing. You shall know also that your offspring shall be many, and your descendants as the grass of the earth. You shall come to your grave in ripe old age, like a sheaf gathered up in its season. Behold, this we have searched out. It is true. Hear and know it for your good. So what we have here is a Sunday school lesson in Proverbs, which 
is not comforting to Job. From Job's point of view, he hasn't done anything to deserve what's happened to him. So one of the things that I take from this is when you are dealing with someone who is hurting in the hospital and all that kind of stuff, you need to be careful how you comfort them, that your comfort doesn't become like this. One of the things that I say when someone is having trouble is it is possible and probable that you didn't cause this. But you're the first place to look. When something bad happens, the first thing you need to do is look at you honestly and make sure that it isn't you that did it because you can fix that. But it's entirely possible that it wasn't you. Whereas in the mind of Job's three comforters, the possibility that it isn't him doesn't occur to them. What this is trying to do is dispel what I would call the Sunday school understanding of Jesus. It does that very well. On to chapter 6. Then Job answered and said, Oh, that my vexation were weighed and all my calamity laid in the balances. For then it would be heavier than the sand of the sea. Therefore my words have been rash. For the arrows of the Almighty are in me. My spirit drinks their poison. The terrors of God are arrayed against me. Does the wild donkey bray when he has grass, or the ox low over its fodder? Can that which is tasteless be eaten without salt? Or is there any taste in the juice of the mallow? My appetite refuses to touch them. They are as food that is loathsome to me. In other words, I've lost my appetite. The vexation that I am undergoing right now is heavier than the sand of the sea, which is to say, more than I can bear. Verse 8. Oh, that I might have my request, and that God would fulfill my hope, that it would please God to crush me, that he would let loose his hand and cut me off. So what he's saying here is, this calamity would have killed any normal person. And the fact that I'm still alive is something I wish God would turn loose of. Remember back last time he said, better that I had not been born, that I had been stillborn, because then I would be with the dead. Princes, kings, all those people, they're all dead, they're all dead the same, and I would have been with them then, and I wouldn't be going through this vexation. What I'm going through now would kill anybody else. I wish God would let it kill me. Verse 10, this would be my comfort. I would even exult in pain unsparing, for I have not denied the words of the Holy One. What is my strength that I should wait? And what is my end that I should be patient? Is my strength the strength of stones? Or is my flesh bronze? Have I any help in me when resource is driven from me? He says, I'm not strong enough to carry this. He who withholds kindness from a friend forsakes the fear of the Almighty. My brothers are treacherous as a torrent bed, as torrential streams that pass away. So what he's talking about here is Eliphaz. He who withholds kindness from a friend forsakes the fear of the Almighty. What you have just said to me was not kind. My brothers are treacherous as a torrent bed, which is to say, 
anybody that's ever been trout fishing, you know what it's like walking on the stones in a flowing stream. They very often scoot out from under you. It's treacherous footing. My brothers are treacherous as a torrent bed, as torrential streams that pass away, which are dark with ice, and where the snow hides itself. When they melt, they disappear. When it is hot, they vanish from their place. The caravans turn aside from their course. They go up into the waste and perish. The caravans of Tima look the travelers of Sheba hope. They are ashamed because they were confident they came there and are disappointed. In other words, they came looking for water. The caravan in the desert travels from oasis to oasis. And so they have come looking for water and the water is gone. Just like I have come looking for comfort from you guys and I didn't find it. 21. For you have now become nothing. You see my calamity and are afraid. Have I said, make me a gift? Or from your wealth, offer a bribe for me? Or deliver me from the adversary's hand? Or redeem me from the hand of the ruthless? So what he's saying here is, a friend in need is a pest. You guys have come and comfort me and this whole thing has spooked you. And you're terrified. I haven't asked you to spend anything except time with I didn't even ask for that, really. You just came and did that. I haven't asked you for a loan. I haven't asked you for a bribe. I haven't asked you to restore me. I've asked you for nothing here. Yet you are pushing me away and treating me like some sort of a sinner and a pariah. And the rebuke here is, if you thought that I had just come upon a bad stretch, you would sort of feel compelled to lend me some money to get me back on my feet. But if you say to yourselves, he deserves what he's getting, then I don't have to reach into my pocket to help him. That's what Job is saying here. I'm not asking you for help, yet you are treating me as somebody who's lost his fortune and has come to you for a loan. Oh, don't come near to me, you sinner. Who needs money? So verse 24. Teach me, and I will be silent. Make me understand how I have gone astray. How forceful are upright words. But what does reproof from you reprove? Do you think you can reprove words when the speech of a despairing man is wind? You would even cast lots over the fathers and bargain over your friend. He is saying, you have given me proverbs, platitudes. He blamed all this on me. And you are so bad that you would even cast lots over the fatherless, which is to say a fatherless is somebody who is poor. You know, he's one of the Bible's categories of people who are to be protected, the stranger, the fatherless, the widow, and the poor. So the idea of casting lots over the fatherless, in other words, an orphan, you go in and look at what little he has and you cast lots to scarf it up, that is really low. So Job is sort of swinging back here just as good as he got. I mean, he's, he's really going after these guys. 28. But now, be pleased to look at me, for I will not lie to your face. Please turn, let no injustice be done. Turn now, 
My vindication is at stake. Is there any injustice on my tongue? Cannot my palate discern the cause of calamity? Remember, we said up front, it's really important to this story that both Job and his friends are people of substance. So his friend is giving him Sunday school platitudes. Job is coming back and saying, I am as smart as you are. I am perfectly capable of looking at my own life. And I am not finding anything worthy of what has happened to me. So you have one guy who's a wise man of the East speaking in Proverbs, and he says, you must be a sinner. You have another wise man of the East also speaking in Proverbs saying, I know as much about this as you do, and no, I'm not. What Job is saying here is, in verse 28, chapter 6, 28, but now be pleased to look at me, for I will not lie to your face. Please turn. Let no injustice be done. Turn now. My vindication is at stake. Is there any injustice on my tongue? Cannot my palate discern the cause of calamity? I have already looked at me. Remember I said earlier, when bad things start to happen to you, the first place you ought to look is at you. And what Job is saying, I've done that. And I furthermore have done that from a position of wisdom that is at least as great as any of yours. Chapter 7, Job is still speaking. Has not man a hard service on earth, and are not his days like the days of a hired hand, like a slave who longs for the shadow, and like a hired hand who looks for his wages? So I am allotted months of emptiness, and nights of misery are apportioned to me. When I lie down, I say, when shall I rise? But the night is long, and I am full of tossing till the dawn. My flesh is clothed with worms and dirt. My skin hardens and breaks out afresh. My days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle and come to their end without hope. One of the things about Job is, and I've said this lots of times before, is Job does a lot of whining. And God doesn't blame him for whining. From that, I infer that whining is okay in the face of adversity. I'm not being critical of Job, believe me. This is not a critical statement. It's an observation. Job does a lot of whining. He's got a lot of reason to whine. Verse 7. Remember that my life is a breath. My eye will never see good again. The eyes of him who sees me will behold me no more. While your eyes are on me, I shall be gone. As the cloud fades and vanishes, so he who goes down to Sheol does not come up. He returns no more to his house, nor does his place know him anymore. So he's saying, I am at the point of death. And quite frankly, he said earlier, that would be a good thing. I really wish God would take his hand off me and just let me die. Because what's happening to me would have killed anybody else. Verse 11. Therefore, I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. Am I the sea or a sea monster that you have set a guard over me? When I say my bed will comfort me, my couch will ease my complaint. Then you scare me with dreams and terrify me with visions so that I would choose strangling and death rather than my bones. I loathe my life. I will not live forever. 
Leave me alone, for my days are a breath. What is man that you make so much of him, that you set your heart on him? Visit him every morning and test him every moment. So this is his complaint to God. He's tired of this. And again, please understand, he's got reason to be tired of this. This is not some silly little drama queen looking for a safe space in school. This is serious affliction that he's going through. Verse 19. How long will you not look away from me, nor leave me alone till I swallow my spit? If I sin, what do I do to you, you watcher of mankind? Why have you made me your mark? Why have I become a burden to you? So somewhere else in Scripture says, by sinning you don't harm God, and by being righteous you don't give him anything he needs. That kind of a, a sentiment. Don't get me wrong. God cares about your sin and he cares about your righteousness, but not because it hurts him, but because it hurts you and he loves you. And in a sense, God has done this to him because God is the one that started the contest with Satan. If God had not done what he had done with Satan, none of this would have happened to Job. 21. Why do you not pardon my transgression and take away my iniquity? For now I shall lie in the earth You will seek me, but I shall not be. So we're talking about death in this case. I started this thing off by saying one of the things that God has given us is this book. And this book has stuff in it that we need to know for perspective as we go through this life. Because stuff happens to us and we very often can't see what the causes are. And so what the book does is it gives us perspective that there's stuff going on beyond what we can sense with our five senses. That's sort of thing one. Thing two, as I said also, is it is impossible to understand the creator from inside of the creation. We are a subset of what God has made. And sort of by definition, the limit of our understanding is what he has created us to be able to understand. And he is so much bigger than that that there is stuff about him that we will never be able to understand. It just isn't possible. It's sort of like the Big Bang. Physicists say it is not even theoretically possible to know what was before that. It's the same thing with understanding the mind of God. So from God's perspective, which he is giving us an insight into in this book, he has set Job up for great honor, and he has set Job up for a reward that God regards as being worth everything that he is putting Job through. Job doesn't know that. From Job's perspective, God is now his enemy. The Almighty has sunk his arrows into me, and I drink their poison. He is suffering unjustly and he doesn't understand why and he doesn't see the bigger picture but God from his perspective is seeing I'm doing this guy great honor such that all this is going to be worth it to him when it's over and God knows that and we don't please consider becoming a sponsor please visit crimsonthread.com purpose for an explanation of what we're doing, 
and perhaps to become a sponsor. Thank you. Let us